social media is almost no longer a, a useful term because it's uh, so eclectic and how people use it varies so much from community to community. Welcome to BMC's Digital Outliers, a podcast series where some of our industry's brightest minds examine the many ways digital technology is transforming the modern workplace and how companies can find the right blueprint to successfully become digital powerhouses. In this episode, host Brian Solis, best-selling author and principal analyst at the Altimeter Group, speaks with Alexandra Samuel, a technology futurist, author, and speaker about the evolution of social media from campaign tool to transformational change agent. She offers some advice to overwhelmed executives about why they should start with needs or goals, then match them with the right digital technology. Well, hello again. I am Brian Solis, and with me today is Alexander Samuel, who is a she's a writer, she's a researcher, she's a speaker, she's the author of Work Smarter with Social Media, among many, many other things. She's also someone who has an incredible perspective on where we are and where we're going with digital. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Nice talking to you, Brian. Before we kick off, let's um, let's talk a little bit about about you. So share with us a bit more about your background and what you're working on. Well, by, I'm a political scientist by training, which is probably the most improbable way of getting into social media. I've been working in what we now call social media for about 15 years. Uh, most recently, I was the VP of social for a company called Vision Critical, which is a customer intelligence software company that runs customer communities for a lot of um, Fortune uh, 1000 companies. But for the past, uh, I guess, year or so, I've primarily been working uh, as a writer, writing about the tech world, speaking about the tech world. Um, and a lot of my writing is, is based on some of what I learned at, at Vision Critical around uh, developing data-driven content. Um, but I also write a lot about uh, how families navigate the tech world because I'm a parent myself and I suffer from the um, daily results of the mistake of ever handing my child an iPhone. And so um, <laughs> I, I tend to write a lot about that too. Let's go a, a bit back into your past. And you, you were one of the uh, the early uh, thought leaders in social media. And I just would love to hear your story about how, you know, what fascinated you about social and, and what drove you to jump in and help shape it. I had written my dissertation on um, hacktivism, so politically motivated computer hacking. Um, and when I finished that in 2004, I guess the what we would now call social media was just getting started. Blogging was just getting started. And I um, really, in my, in my dissertation, had explored the question of what would motivate some people to get involved in this risky behavior of hacking for various political causes. And, and, and really, that came down to what motivates people to get engaged online. And it turned out that that was a useful thing to have spent some time thinking about because as the social revolution, if we can call it that, got underway, the challenge that a lot of organizations really struggled with was, you know, as we're shifting from communications as a message push activity and into communications as more of a participatory activity, the challenge was really how do we get our customers, our supporters, our audience to uh, respond to us, to engage with us, to create content. And I, I had come to see that a very powerful way of, of getting people to engage online is by offering them some sort of identity, what I called an identity claim. So the opportunity to say, I am the kind of person who cares about this issue. And in fact, that's what we've seen over the years is that a lot of the most powerful social media campaigns have really been driven by that opportunity to express some part of your identity. 
The thing about social media that really fascinates me and, and how you just linked it to hacktivism is when we talk about sort of democracy as for the people, from the people, uh, in that social sort of gave everybody, in, in a sense, equal access to information, uh, people, and what have you. It also gave people equal access to misinformation and the ability to uh, pollute the internet with, uh, with, with their conspiracy theories and mm-hmm. experiences. So how do you see social media's impact on on the web and how has it evolved over the years and you know if we had to call it a state of what would that state of be the the first thing i would say is that you know not all social media is created equal and different networks have different um designers use the term affordances you know different uh elements of interface of usage that that kind of steer people in certain directions in terms of how they'll um engage so a really obvious example of that is how facebook has comment threads, right? If you respond to something um, in a comment, it placed in relation to the comment before it, whereas on Twitter, it's more of an open season. And that leads to different kinds of conversations. So there certainly isn't one state of social media, you know, even just across platforms. There certainly isn't one state of social media, even across platforms. But even within a platform, you know, there are enormous differences and, and probably um, the poster children for this are things like Tumblr and Reddit, which are simultaneously home to porn um, or very explicit, often sometimes kind of hostile or antisocial communities, and also home to wonderful communities and, and incredible art. So the thing that has really changed for me as somebody who's been involved in this space since 2004 is that you know there used to be some kind of overarching social media culture, but social media is almost no longer a, a useful term because it's uh, so eclectic and how people use it varies so much from community to community. People still are confused about social media. Yes, 10 people in, in any variety of industries about what social media is. And you, you'll get a response that ranges from tools to, you know, theoretical oh. uh, <laughs> definitions to really this just broad misunderstanding or maybe understanding of, of what it is and what it could be. But at the end of the day, you know, what we're really talking about is sort of technology's impact on society. We're talking about uh, how it's changing behaviors. We're looking at things not just generationally, but introducing new capabilities. And with that comes new expectations and new new demands. And I'm curious, you know, you, you started one of the first social agencies back, I think it was 2005. And also just most recently, you know, being at Vision Critical, you've had a lot of uh, opportunity, I could imagine, uh, and experience with working with businesses trying to better understand this evolving web, uh, whether it was just static or social. And curious, you know, what what did you see along the way in terms of what businesses were getting and weren't getting and, and where are they today? Well, you know, it's funny you ask this because I just gave a, a keynote last week to an association that was the first time in a long time that I've been booked to talk about social media per se. And it struck me as a, a lovely moment to reflect on because, you know, when we first started working in social media, the, the agency I started with my husband, Social Signal, we, we said from the get-go, we're only doing what was then called Web 2.0 projects. So I never really did status sites. But in those early days, we were really lucky in that we worked with people who were real visionaries because frankly in 2004 to decide that you wanted to have a website where people could contribute content you had to be pretty brave and you had to really go out on a limb internally within your organization to convince people to do that and then Facebook and Twitter came along and um, we started working with organizations that were developing presences there 
again, it was a real uphill battle. Um, and a lot of organizations were really uh, hesitant about diving into that space. And now I will say in, in 2016, I do sometimes have conversations with individuals who say, oh, I can't be bothered to be on Facebook or I can't be bothered to be on Twitter. If I meet an organization that isn't using those platforms, unless it's something like a, you know, a securities commission, like an organization with a regulatory role that makes social media really problematic, it, you know, it, it, things have to be pretty off kilter for an organization not to be on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn in 2016. So it's it's obviously become um, much more mainstream. And yet I think a lot of organizations are still struggling to adjust to the larger implications that that shift has uh, on their relationship to their customers or their audiences. It's so true and, and also so fascinating at the same time how far we've come in certain circumstances and how little in terms of advancements we've made uh, in, in better understanding our potential impact and, and the ability to add value to customers and, and also employees, right? Because the same technologies that are affecting customers are also the same technologies that kind of face how people want to work and and why. Uh, for example, I'm sure you've had your fair share of conversations as to whether or not Slack is improving productivity or reducing <laughs> productivity. And I, of course, so many, so many dynamics to that conversation. But what would you say the state of digital maturity is in business uh, and in organizations at large? It's extremely eclectic. And one of the things that I really love is that, you know, back in the day when I was first in the space, I was almost always working with organizations where they were just getting their feet wet and and we were there to help them understand the space. So, for example, we built um, the first Facebook application for BC Hydro, which is the, the power utility here. And, you know, that was a big adventure for them. And thinking about the privacy implications of asking people to post on Facebook or even asking them to install a Facebook application, you know, that was a six-month process to look at the privacy piece. Um, and now uh, organizations, you know, have their, they have their minds around that, I think, for the most part. But where, you know, and what's lovely now is that when I go and meet with a company, I'm very likely to learn as much from them as, I, as they are to learn from me because there's so many... Uh, people now who've got a decade of experience doing social campaigns that, you know, there's a real wealth of inspiration to draw on. But what I think, you know, is, is for me very telling is that a lot of the colleagues I had in the early days of social uh, aren't really working in digital media at all anymore. They have migrated into basically being change management consultants. Because what we have seen is that, you know, yeah, it, it isn't like, falling off a log to come up with a good Facebook campaign or to come up with a great website. But we all kind of more or less know how to do that. What is really difficult for organizations is to be able to respond at the speed of the web. And that isn't just responding in the sense of saying, you know, thank you for your feedback. We're going to get back to you. It's actually being able to go into the organization and say, hey, 24 people tweeted us today because they had terrible customer service experiences at our airport car rental counters. How are we going to change the way we do business so that we can actually satisfy those concerns? You're listening to BMC's Digital Outliers, a series dedicated to helping you understand the many ways digital technology is transforming the modern workplace. To listen to other podcasts in this series, go to digitaloutliers.com. And that is, you know, 
becoming that kind of responsive organization is not a tech challenge. It's it's an organizational challenge. And, and so I really think the state of the art is about um, companies changing the way they work and moving away from um, this now relatively longstanding trend of bigger is better and learning to decentralize so that they can provide their frontline people with more autonomy and the ability to respond effectively. And therein lies both the challenge and opportunity, right? Because as we all know, change is as much about all of these evolutions and revolutions in market in terms of technology and expectations as it is on just human behavior and the psychology of change. I, I still get questions from executives that are rather serious when they when they ask, don't you think at some point all of this is becoming a little too much and that consumers <laughs> are just sort of going to revolt, uh, <laughs> revolt against their technology? And with your point about people becoming sort of involved in change management uh, and also your uh, I love the, that you use the word eclectic in your experience when you you keynote at different events. What are some of the challenges that you hear from people? What are some of the questions that uh, reveal what they're struggling with? My speaking is pretty eclectic as well. Um, and in recent months or years. I've, I've been speaking to two really different kinds of audiences. I've been talking a lot about managing technology as, as a family, and I've been talking a lot about uh, data-driven content, how to use the data that we now, many organizations, most organizations now have at their disposal uh, as part of their content strategy and being able to find the story in their data. And those seem like two hugely different kinds of challenges, right? Like, how do I keep my kid off my iPad versus how do I take all of the data that we have in our, you know, SAP system and turn it into really cool infographics. They would seem to be unrelated issues. But fundamentally, the pain point um, that I hear is the same, which is uh, the sense of being overwhelmed. We are so overtaxed um, by the rate of change today that we feel like we can't keep up. And that's a pain point for professionals and it's a pain point for parents. And, you know, I think that the executives who say, and I, I hear that too, you know, at some point we're going to have to just call stop on this. I, I think it's wishful thinking because I, I don't see any evidence that people have ever stepped away from technology. I, I And I have never seen any evidence that things have dramatically slowed down unless you go back to something like the plague. <laughs> um, so hopefully that's not the scenario. And um, and so I think the, the real challenge for us, both organizationally and personally, is to develop the capacity to manage um, not just the current pace of change, but an accelerating pace of change. Yes, 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 yes. It starts with a matter of perspective, right? Because the fact that they're asking that question is also revealing in its own right, uh, which probably if you wanted to get the struggles that they're dealing with as human beings, you know, maybe they're um, a mother or a father or they're struggling with, with technology in their own personal lives. And maybe that's just, like you said, wishful thinking as sort of a, an expression of of just the frustrated state that they're in, in terms of their inability to get their arms and, and mind around uh, technology. And I think a lot of that, you know, when we look at mobile and social and, and everything else on the horizon, you know, the internet of things and autonomous vehicles, everything that's just going to accelerate, as you said, you know, when you have these executives who don't necessarily live their business the way that their customers and employees do. And then you have, say, connected customers and connected employees who use their devices as a matter of lifestyle. I got to imagine that there's a lot that we could learn 
from your work in bringing parents and kids together around technology so that you're you're managing it um, instead of hoping it goes away or uh-huh. severely restricting it so that it it impairs say evolution um, but you know as as a parent what are, what are you learning on those fronts and and are there ways or parallels to bring it back into the organization my philosophy across you know, both the professional and the personal front is that our culture is very strongly oriented to a scarcity mindset. And when you have a scarcity mindset, then you're constantly focused on how do I get as much as possible. But we now live in a world where, at least as far as information is concerned, the problem is the problem of abundance. But we now live in a world where, at least as far as information is concerned, the problem is the problem of abundance. And so we need to get out of this mindset of keeping up, whether it's keeping up with your colleagues, keeping up with all the news in your field, or keeping up with your kids. And instead, we need to start by asking, what am I trying to accomplish, whether it's with my kids or with my work, and then ask, what are the technologies that can support me in achieving those goals? So for example, if your goal with your kid is, I want my kid to spend Um, as much time reading as possible. I want my kid to be an enthusiastic and passionate reader. Well, one approach to that is to strictly limit screen time and give them a big stack of books and say, you know, you have to read 100 pages before you get your screen time every day. Another way of approaching it is to say, you know what, I'm going to give you a Kindle. You're going to have a Kindle Unlimited account. You're going to have a Goodreads account. We're going to help you find books you really love. We're going to plug you into a community where you can talk about the books you love. And, and neither one of those approaches is the right approach. It really depends on your kid and what is going to excite them and what's going to motivate them. And so we need to get away from thinking of technology as some sort of monolithic entity and really look at the fact that technology and screens are, uh, take many, many different forms. And if you can put your goal first, you can then ask, you know, what are the technologies that are going to serve me and what are the technologies that are going to distract you know, I was just about to ask you, what advice would you give to uh, executives and management uh, and managers looking who are struggling with technology and employees who are struggling with technology infrastructures? And essentially, you're saying give technology a purpose and give it focus, and then technology becomes an enabler as opposed to something that drowns you. Uh, you're you're watching society evolve. You're watching technology evolve. In the final minutes that we have left together, you know, what what would you say we have to pay attention to both as as business professionals and also as as human beings? Well, you know, it's, it's a great question. And my answer is kind of a funny one um, that reflects, I think, my own kind of personal journey over the past 20 years. Um, when I first got involved in the internet, part of what I loved about it was this experience of disembodiment. And, you know, I've always been somebody who thinks of my body as like the thing that my brain walks around in. I, I, I never really think of it as like me. And over the years, I've really come to experience my body as more part of me. What that means in practice is I've learned to notice my emotional states much more from physical cues. For So for example, I noticed at a certain point, uh, I have a tendency to get like freezing cold when I'm anxious. And that's actually, once I realized that that was uh, predictable, I tuned into that and if I'm in a meeting and talking to somebody and I get really cold, that's like my spidey sense telling me that something is going on here that isn't okay. That kind of embodied presence 
is really a crucial source of human wisdom. And it's one that's really easy for us to get divorced from when we go on screens because the screens really do encourage this brain in a jar kind of experience. So often we look at the body and the screen as if they're in opposition. But the reality is that like, at least for now, until we get our brain implants working, um, we still mostly <laughs> use our screens with our hands. We're still in our bodies when we're on screens. And so, you know, a lot of what I've learned around this, I've learned from working with my son. I have a son who's autistic. And so we've had a lot of challenges around his use of technology. I will often say to him when he's on, on a game and I can see him getting revved up, I'll say like, what's going on in your body right now? Or I'll pull out the iPhone and use the app that does a heart rate measurement. And we'll look at his heart rate before and after he's played a game for half an hour. And I think that the, the most crucial skill that all of us need as we spend more and more of our consciousness in this digital space is to retain that connection and to pay attention to what goes on in our bodies. Because I will tell you, I can easily spend five hours on a Friday night. In fact, it's Friday. It might be the night going on shop style and looking at every pair of size 11 shoes on the internet. My brain may tell me that that's rewarding. But the second I like bring myself to close the screen, I notice that I feel lousy because amazingly enough, looking at shoes on the internet is not actually a really fulfilling activity. Whereas if I spend that same time on my computer, but writing or on my computer, but having like a great conversation with somebody in a Facebook group that I'm really passionate about, I, I do feel good. So I think it's just really important for us to stay connected to the impact that our screen time has and to learn to differentiate between different ways we use technology based on the clues that our own bodies give us. Alexander, I could I could listen to you for hours. I would love to continue this conversation in one way, shape, or form in the future, but either way, I encourage everybody to follow uh, Alexander and her work uh, out there, and I think you could just uh, start by going to alexandersamuel.com. Alexander, thank you so much for being on the show, and I, I wish you the best in all of your work in the future. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for listening to BMC's Digital Outliers, a series dedicated to sharing the changes the modern workplace is undergoing via digital technology. BMC Software is a global leader that partners with companies committed to becoming digital powerhouses. Follow us on Twitter at BMC Software and at BMC underscore DSM.